please turn your attention to the screens. We're going to start off a little differently than we normally do. Does this differentiate me from any other faith on earth, right? One of the things that makes Christianity unique is that, you know, it is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the Son, right? Uh, you don't get to the Son through somebody else. You don't get to the Son through Buddha, right? Um, but also, evangelical Christians tend to be pretty critical of other faiths. Um, Mormonism is a perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in an evangelical church or certain evangelical churches, you know, they teach you that Mormons basically have it wrong, that Mormons, Mormonism is a bastardization of Christianity, right? Uh, it's not just another Christian group. And they, lots of Christians will write books that explain how all the things that Mormons believe about Joseph Smith and these things that happened are not true, and here's why. And the Book of Mormon is not true, and here's why. So they can be very critical of that faith. But yet, if you say those things to a Mormon, they will say, well, I have a burning in the bosom that proves to me that these things are right. So you can tell me that these things seem wrong and you can show me certain things, but I believe them to be true and you can't change that because I have this sort of seal and sign from God, this indication that this faith is real and this is all true. And I was like, isn't that what I'm doing right now? Isn't, I'm, now I'm just saying that I'm just gonna have faith that things are real from the evidence. So how does that make me any different, right? Um, so the question for you this morning then is, is that an accurate representation for those of you who would call yourselves a Christian? Think about this for, with me for a second. Rhett just accused you and any other person who calls himself a believer that really what you're doing is exactly what the Mormons do. You say that you believe in a Jesus who came 2,000 years ago, lived and died, and then was raised from the dead. Do you believe that, first of all? And if you do believe that, how might you go about proving that to somebody? How might you say to someone, well, here's why I'm a Christian. Here's why I'm not a Buddhist or an atheist or anything else in between. Here's why I choose to believe in Jesus Christ and have staked my life upon that. Because for some of you, if it is just, well, my parents brought me to Compass and I've been raised in the church for now 17, almost 18 years, this has kind of been my life. And if I left it, it would be really painful to leave because I, you know, this is what I know. This is what I love. This is like a warm blanket. I'm comfortable in this. For some of you, this is really all you've ever come to know as a, as a person, as a human being. You've been raised in the faith. You've been raised to, to think Christianly. And there's a lot of benefit to that. But here's my question for you again. Is is this real? Is the Christian faith real? Or is it really just a matter of saying, I have faith that Jesus did live and die and, and rise again? Is it just a matter of saying, I feel this? There's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit to Christianize it. That I, I really do believe that this is the real faith. How do you know that? How can you be confident, just as Rhett's saying here, if you can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, how can you be confident that what you're doing here isn't just a colossal waste of your time, my time, every leader in this room, 
the money that we spend, keeping it together. How can you possibly know that Christianity is true? Today we're going to talk about a very important text, probably one of the most important sermons that I get to preach. It's really all about the gospel. And yet, one of the critical factors that we have to think about in this is, are we talking about a fairy tale? Is this a myth? Is this a legend? Is this something that's really just meant to make you feel good? Or is this founded in reality? And really, let's ask another question. Does it matter if Christianity is real or false? Because if it makes me a better person, isn't that good enough? If I find that Christianity makes me a better husband, I pay my taxes, I love my kids, I don't beat them, I, you know, I don't run over old ladies at the crosswalk. If Christianity makes me a better person, does it really matter if it's true or false? If it's not true in an objective sense, if it's true to me, isn't that sufficient? What would you say to that? Does it matter if Christianity is a fabrication of someone's imagination, or rather, several someone's, or does it need to be true? Does Christianity need to have a historical basis in real time, in space, for it to matter? And if that is the case, if Christianity is true, and if Jesus really did live and die and rise from the dead, if that is the case, what should your life look like in response to that? See, some of us have forgotten how strange Christianity is. We forget that we're worshiping a God who supposedly lived and died and rose from the dead. Have you ever seen that before? Have you ever seen? Raise your hand if you've seen someone rise from the dead. Me neither. We don't see that today. So it's really challenging to say, well, we believe in a Jesus that actually did that. How do you know? Well, the book says it. How do you know the book's true? Well, oh, God said. Well, no, that's the book. How do you know? You see, one of the reasons we went through this whole thing with you guys is to help you really think through clearly what the Christian faith is. Uh, there's fundamental truths that we cling to, but it's not always as straightforward as some of us like to believe. There's, there's complication. The truth is not unclear. It's really that we are the ones who are broken. We have a hard time wrestling with, with who God is. And as I was talking to a leader uh, yesterday, I think, or the day before that, we were just saying how interesting it is that we as finite humanity really try to wrap our minds around infinity, <laughs> We sang that this morning, you know, to, to, to worship such infinity. Finite creation, three pounds of matter in the top part of your brain or head, is trying to fathom infinity. I mean, just think about infinity. Go ahead, think about infinity. It's mind-blowing. But again, I digress. If God is who he says he is, and if Jesus is who he says he is, what effect should that have in your life? But even more fundamental, how do we know it's true? How can we be confident well, as I already alluded to, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at what the Word says about who He is, but we're going to keep going a little deeper. And in fact, two weeks from today, we're going to ask the question, why is it that in the back half of Matthew, excuse me, Mark 16, we have about eight verses that weren't in the original Bible? Why is that still in our Bible if it wasn't originally there? In fact, if you look at your Bible right now, you'll see from verse 9 in chapter 16 all the way through verse 20, you'll have a little heading there that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And yet, there it is in our Bible. Why is that there, Christian? Why is that there? And more pressingly, if you look at verse 28 in Mark 15, look at verse 28, Mark 15. Go ahead and quote that for me. Look at verse 28. You see it there? Wait a minute. It's not there. If you're using an ESV anyway. It's a lot of fundamental, real, and challenging questions about our faith 
that you need to be prepared to answer. Because if this is true, and that's really the whole stake of Christianity, we believe this is real, this is true. If this is true, how do you know it's true? How can you be confident that what we're looking at is not a fabrication, is not someone's imagination? It's a big deal, young person. I had you go through Rhett and Link's testimonies or anti-testimonies because I really do care that you understand what's at stake, that you understand that going to church for all of your life and having a family and saying your vows with Jesus at the center doesn't guarantee that you're going to last the, the duration of your Christian life. What matters is that you have your, your, your salvation grounded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this sermon really is about, knowing what the gospel is and responding to it rightly. If Jesus really did live and die and rise again, what should that do to your life? That should radically alter everything about who you are. There should be no going back to what you were before. And if this really happened, and if not, then forget about everything I say. Leave and don't change anything about your life. Live, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you die and it doesn't matter. You don't matter. Life doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you have a kid. Doesn't matter if you get married. Doesn't matter if you have a great career. Live and die. There is no fundamental purpose. Life's purpose is whatever you give to it. Unless this is true. Let's take a look at our text this morning and see what we can gather from this. this I want to make a case to you, at least in this first part, about how you can have a sense of what we, what, why we believe this, okay? Why we believe this. So in your mind, as we do this, ask yourself questions about why, what evidence would there be for me to believe this? Let's look together, starting at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, they, they, they the Roman guards, those who were uh, ushering Jesus' crucifixion, those who were killing him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So imagine this. Jesus had just got done being uh, flogged. And the flogging, of course, is a whip with, with nails and rocks and jagged things at the edge of it so that when they strip him or when they hit him, they're stripping him of his flesh. They're ripping his flesh open so that in some cases, as I told you before, when people are flogged, it's not uncommon as they're being held to that post there for stuff to fall out of their back. What? Your guts. <laughs> and they die in the flogging because it's so painful and it's so violent. Jesus had just been flogged at Pilate's request in order to appease the, 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 the leaders of the, of, the, of the Jews. And so Jesus is now bloody and bruised. You've got to imagine that Jesus is no longer even like discernibly a human. He's just a bloody mess. His face is contorted. Everything about Jesus is now uh, marred because he has been brutalized on a flogging post. Then they give Jesus this 100-pound crossbeam, put it on his shoulders, and say, now carry this to your side of crucifixion. You can imagine Jesus by this point would have had little energy or even perhaps even the physical ability. Imagine this. If you're getting flogged and, and you get hit on your knee where you got tendons and things or muscles, maybe his muscles weren't even able to physically move the way that they needed to because his body had been so brutalized. Simon of Cyrene's walking by from the country. And Cyrene would have been northern Africa. It's possible Simon was a, a man of color. He's walking by and they say, hey, you, come here. The Roman guard conscripts him to service and says, now carry this so we get this guy to his crucifixion site. Simon of Cyrene. But you'll notice there's an interesting subtext there. It says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. What does that matter? Well, apparently Mark understood that his readers would have known who Alexander and Rufus are. Why? We have every reason to believe that these people were not just passerbys who have, you know, stayed on the, on the edges. It seems like Simon uh, and Alexander and Rufus could have become believers off of this. Otherwise, why would Mark mention them? He's saying that's the father of Alexander and Rufus. This is the Simon we're talking about. Verse 27, 
22, excuse me, 22. And they brought him to the place, uh, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So you, now you have a physical location that they're identifying. Mark is writing to his audience saying, now pay attention, people. This is that spot called Golgotha. It's that place of the skull, that place that has a rock fixture that kind of looks like a skull if you look at it from afar. That place, that's where Jesus died. He's giving them in a precise location. And then he's saying, as is customary, someone, probably some Jewish women who are, who are trying to be, show mercy to those who are perishing, says, here's a mixture that's meant to anesthetize your suffering. Although it doesn't seem like there's any real uh, anesthetic properties to that mixture. Jesus has offered it, but he denies it. I think for two reasons, but at the very least, Jesus is denying any anesthetic because he wants to feel the full pain of what he's about to experience. Well, why? Because his job, as you know, if you're a Christian, is his, his job is to absorb all of the, God's wrath on the cross. He can't mitigate that. He can't lessen that. Otherwise, he's not paying the full penalty. So Jesus denies the wine, denies the myrrh, and says, I don't need that. He also told his disciples, I'm, never, I'm not going to drink the, the wine, I'm not going to drink the, the, the fruit of the vine until we enter the kingdom together. So you have people who are named, you have places that are named. We continue on here in verse 24. And they crucified him. They crucified him. Mark offers little about this, but you know what that looks like. Nails with the hands, nails with the feet. But of course, you also remember that what's happening is that they're brutalizing Jesus by humiliating him as well. They're also, as they ripped off the clothing from his body, and for most of you guys, you've seen images of Jesus on the cross wearing a loincloth. That's likely not what happened. It's possible, but it's not likely. Part of the idea behind the cross is to inflict the maximum amount of pain and the maximum amount of humiliation. What, what better way to humiliate someone than to parade them around naked and bloody and bruised? So Jesus is suffering one of the ultimate humiliations in a culture where they value honor and they despise to the nth degree shame, Jesus is now being shamed by being lifted up on a cross. And so they take off his garments, and now they're casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. It would have been 9 a.m. Uh, Jews account time based upon the sunrise, and so the sunrise was approximated at about 6 a.m. So third hour, three hours after 6 a.m., 9 a.m. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. If you think about this, there's a lot of people that uh, will call the Gospels not reliable historically. But it's things like this where you look at it and you say, well, wait a minute, that's, that sounds interesting. Why would they say that there's an inscription on top? Well, it's because under Roman practice, when someone was charged and having a crime deserving of crucifixion, they wanted everyone to know. Well, for what purpose? Well, the same reason why we want, we, we, you ever see the dunce cap that t teachers used to make students wear? The whole idea was like, this guy's being an, an idiot, don't act like him. Uh, the, same, the same thing is happening here. They're putting this, the, the charge above him as a, as a sign and a warning to everyone around saying, don't do what this guy did to warrant this punishment. Effective, if you ask me, because this guy, again, bloody, naked, being raised on a cross, it's painful, everyone knows that. It's among the worst ways to die. The scripture says, cursed is he who was hanged upon a cross, hanged on a tree. So there's every reason here that we have to believe that this is a terrible thing that's happening. We have every reason to believe that this is not just a terrible thing that's happening, but there are earmarkers all over this text that are meant to show you that this is not legend. This is not myth. This is real place in real time. So let's keep diving in here as we do this. Point number one, I want you to see the crucifixion as historical reality. 
I want you to see this as something that is not the imagination of some brilliant uh, story writer. This is a real place and a real time. And we have clues all over the text that help us to see that. Back in the first century, there's a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius who wrote about Emperor Caligula. Caligula looks like this. At least that's what we think he looks like anyway. Emperor Caligula, who reigned between 37 and 41 AD. Now, if you're kind of doing some math here, that would have been right around the time that Jesus had died. Uh, So 37 to 41 AD, Emperor Caligula. Suetonius writes about him from the very first, the, the opening of the second century, first century. So he now says, this guy, Caligula, had a love of his horse, his horse who was named Incitatus. Caligula loved his horse. How much did he love his horse? Here's what he says. This is the Roman historian Suetonius writing about Caligula's love for his horse, Incitatus. He says, besides a stall of marble, a manger of ivory, purple blankets, and a collar of precious stones, Caligula even gave this horse a house, a troop of slaves, and furniture. For the more elegant entertainment of guests invited in his name. And it is also said that Emperor Caligula planned to make his horse a senator. True or false? How do you know that that's an actual piece of history? Well, the the answer is you you may not fully know. We're trusting Suetonius to accurately represent history in 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 its own right. And the thing is, you don't exactly know if that's really history. There's a lot of reasons why people doubt that being true. But the answer in it is really you have to kind of do some digging. Now answer me this question. Can you put this in a bottle, take it to a laboratory, and test it to see if it's true or false? Can you do that with any historical event? Is it possible to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that any event in history actually took place? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you're honest, the answer is no. You can't know for sure. You have to trust authorities, You have to trust eyewitnesses. You have to trust historical details. You have to trust that there are elements to the story that will lend itself to either being believable or unbelievable. That's why, even in today's day and age, we have people who will deny that the Holocaust actually happened. It's not because there's not sufficient evidence, because I think everyone everyone, everyone in this room would probably say the Holocaust did in fact take place. It's not that there's not sufficient evidence. It's that the evidence that's presented always leaves room for doubt. Did the Holocaust actually happen? We have good reason to believe so. Moving pictures, photographs, eyewitness testimonies, people who lived and escaped <laughs> concentration camps. A lot of reasons for that, to believe that. People also doubt things like the moon landing. We actually didn't make it to the moon. And the reason why is because, well, we were trying to beat the Soviets and the Russia, and so we did this in a back lot in, in Arizona or wherever it was. People will doubt that we landed on the moon. People also doubt that the JFK assassination was done by an outsider, Lee Harvey Oswald. It was someone else from the inside who really helped this take place. Why? Well, because even though we have sufficient evidence, we have a testimony, we have eyewitnesses, we're still going to say, well, we're not 100% sure. You can't be fully certain that it actually happened the way that you said it did. And there's still people who are around from your age and stage who will deny that 9-11 was an outside job. In fact, it was the inside. It was our corrupt government that was trying to make this take place. Why? Well, there's precedent for this, right? There's precedent. If you remember the Nixon administration or anything about it, you heard about uh, Watergate scandal, right? This guy, Chuck Colson, was part of the Watergate scandal. There were 12 men who were trying really hard to keep the scandal under wraps. Nixon, of course, lied. But then later, Chuck Colson became a Christian. And he said, talking about the resurrection, he said, I believe the resurrection happened. Why? Here's what he said. 
He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That alone doesn't make our case for us. Doesn't. I'll be honest with that. And you should, feel about, you should feel that way too. This alone doesn't make our case. But it does at least provide some context. When someone asks you, can you, can you give me purposeful you know, evidence that proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus lived, died, and rose again? No, you can't. You can't because you can't test history that way. History cannot be treated the same way you treat gravity or the same way that you treat chemicals. You can't test it that way. So you have to look at the evidence. So give me, let me give you a, f- a few minutes. This is going to be a bit sicker than what you're used to probably, but let me give you some evidence to consider. The first piece of evidence to consider is genre, okay? We're going to assume, and we're going to talk again in two weeks about textual criticism, which will help give a little more meat to these bones. But the first thing you want to consider is genre. How can we be confident that the people who wrote the Bible wanted us to believe it not as fairy tale or as fantasy or as a faith document alone, but as actual history? Well, the first thing to look at would be genre. For instance, here are some, here's, here's a good way to think about this. I'm going I'm to say something, and then you tell me what genre it is, okay? Once upon a time. What genre? Fairy tale. That's right. Here's another one. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. That's sci-fi. And you guys might know that as the Star Wars franchise. Right. You get the clues about things like this because of the, the content inside. It lends itself to, to let you know what, it, what it's going to do. You don't expect to go to a Star Wars flick and get history from our galaxy, right? You're, you're knowing what you're getting into because the literary genre tells you. Here's another one. What's this one? Today's scripture reading comes from this week's daily Bible reading. <laughs> I don't know what genre that would be, but you get my point. There are clues within the text that tell you what, it's, what, it's, what it is. So first of all, what, what kind of uh, document are the Gospels? You ready for this? It's Greco-Roman bios, B-I-O-S. We might say biography, but that's the technical term, Greco-Roman bios. A Greco-Roman bios was meant to talk about a historical figure, and it was done in a way that mimics a lot of what we expect to see in our Gospels. It's a popular level style of writing. It's anonymous. It's third-person narrative, and they borrow from a wide range of earlier compositions without identifying where their sources come from. Some people have called it ancient novelistic biographies. Ancient novelistic biographies. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the hard part about this, though. <sighs> Greco-Roman bios were also known to be used, uh, let's see, I guess the common vernacular would be like, okay, if you, go to, if you get a romance novel, not that you should read this, but you're not expecting history there, right? It's a popular level style of writing that's meant to capture the reader. That's kind of how they use bios. Bios were used to kind of show a life of a person and not necessarily expect you to believe it word for word. But the, but the Gospels use this style of writing. How can we be certain then, if that's the truth, how can we be certain that these Gospels are intended to communicate true information, facts, history? I have at least one reason for you that we can be confident of this. And it's that what we hear taught in the Gospels are corroborated by another genre of literature, namely the epistles. Okay, So you have... Everyone knows what an epistle is. So you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have epistles, letters that are written from somebody to someone else. Epistles are not fairy tale. They're not story 
They're not story-esque. They're letters. You have everything that is important in the Gospels corroborated in the epistles. And here's another reason why the Gospel writers may have used Greek, Greco-Roman bios to spread their message. Think about this. If I want to communicate to your generation, answer me this question, okay? Interact with me for a second. If I wanted to communicate to your generation and I wanted to spread the message far and wide, what medium should I use? Specifically what? Instagram? Someone says Snapchat? Keep going. There's, there's a number one answer to this. No one said it yet. Not Facebook. No. <laughs> Not Facebook. What is the number one most popular social media site that not only your generation uses, but millennials also? Well, I heard it. YouTube. Sorry, did you say it earlier? Sorry, Shay. YouTube. If I wanted to reach your audience, I would use YouTube a lot more than I do today. In fact, we're actually, we're actually talking about how we can better utilize it so we can reach a larger audience. But here's my point. What kind of genres do you find on YouTube? Like everything, right? Everything. You have history, you have science videos, you have weird videos. But the point is, that's, that's the medium that's going to best express the, the largest of the message. You want to get it out to as many people as possible? Well, it turns out Greco-Roman bios is the vehicle that was best used for that purpose. They got the, the, the authors of the Gospels wanted it to reach a large audience. And so they used Greco-Roman bios to do that. Not only do you have that, you have names. You have names. We talked about Simon, Alexander, Rufus, Barabbas, Pilate. You have Jesus. You have Lazarus. You have Mary. You have Martha. You have names. And in this text alone, we just saw a few of them. But names tell us something important because names give us a sense that we're not talking about fake people here. Presumably, as the Gospels are written, you have people who could have been questioned. Barabbas, I know you're a convicted criminal and you were released, but did you ever come across a guy named Jesus who died on a cross? I do remember that. Yes, yes. He was traded for my life. I remember that. Rufus, Alexander, Simon, could you, could you corroborate what was being said here? They, they could have done that. They could have done that. Furthermore, the names that are mentioned in the, in, the, in the New Testament text are the most popular names that are known from that region. That's a big deal. Because if the, if the text weren't written by eyewitnesses, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that. You'd have to have a really... This is before the internet, guys. Before the internet happened, you'd have to be a really good historian to find out what the precise naming conventions were for a certain geographical location. This is a big deal. Here's another thing that you may not know. Okay. Name the four Gospels. Go. Okay. Of those four Gospels, how many of those Gospel writers were disciples who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry? Two. You've got Matthew, who was the tax collector. And then who else you got? John. John. What about these other two guys? Where did Luke come from? Who is Luke? And why does Luke write a gospel? Luke, you may not know this, was Paul's traveling companion. He was Paul's personal doctor. Paul, the apostle, who persecuted Christians until God knocked him off his horse and said, stop persecuting Jesus, follow Jesus, now live for Jesus, and now die for Jesus. That's kind of what happened. But Paul wasn't even among the number of the apostles, right? He was kind of grafted in at the later stage. He even says that. So now you have Paul, who taught Luke. Luke got his message from Paul among a plurality of witnesses. He got, he, he, it says, uh, Luke says, I, got, I went to a lot of different people. It wasn't just Paul. A lot of different people were involved in my compilation of this information. Now you have Luke. Okay, now what about Mark? Who is Mark? Mark 
Well, here's what we have from the earliest history. Mark, who became Peter's translator, wrote accurately as much as he remembered, though not in ordered form, of the Lord's sayings and doings. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed after him, but later, as I said, he followed after Peter, who was giving his teachings in short anecdotes. Mark had one purpose, to omit nothing of what he'd heard and to present no false testimony. That was written somewhere in the ballpark of 95 to 120 AD. That's one of the earliest testifiers to who Mark was and where Mark got his information. So Mark is now getting his information from the apostle Peter. Now think about that for a moment. That's kind of jolting. We, and, and by the way, did you know this? None of the Gospels have their authors' names in them, at least not in the way that you and I would. This is Luke of so-and-so, Mark of so-and-so. Now Luke gives some biographical detail, but there's no certainty to say, okay, who exactly is this person? The Gospels are written anonymously. Again, remember, Greco-Roman bios were generally written to be anonymous. How do we know then? We're trusting our church history to say, well, people were communicating this. And by the way, if we were going to make this up, if we were going to make up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the worst possible choices we could make, right? If we were going to make it up, if Christians were going to make it up, why would they choose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Shouldn't they rather have chosen John, Peter, James, and maybe not get rid of the third guy? Those are the closest people to Jesus, and yet only one of them writes a, a, a gospel. Now, that might confuse you, but here's my point in that. If Christians, early first century Christians, were going to make it up, they wouldn't have chosen Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We can trust those because that makes the best sense of the data. We have genre. We have names. We also have places. Let me do this one really quickly here. Um, you are intimately familiar. Most of you guys are from the surrounding area of Aliso Viejo, right? You're intimately familiar with this area because you grew up in it. Some of you might have not noticed, but now you're going to notice, and you're not going to be able to unnotice this, that this room is slanted. It's higher on that side than it is on that side. Did you notice that? Now you can't unsee it. It's going to be like that for the rest of your life. You're welcome. But you would know stuff like that if you were either the builder or if you had intimate knowledge of the room. The same thing is true in the Gospels. There's intimate knowledge of the terrain, of the geography, of the cities. Intimate knowledge of the way that you walk up to Jerusalem. Intimate knowledge of how the place works. And of course, one more facet I'd like to throw at you is prophecy. Genre, names, places, prophecy. Scripture shows itself uh, that it's meant to be taken seriously as historical information because of the way that it handles with prophecy. It looks back to things like Psalm 22 and says, Psalm 22 is a fulfillment. It is found uh, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You also have Isaiah 53, which we don't have time to go through, but I mean, if you just take a quick curse review over Psalm 22, it says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. You can see Jesus on the cross thinking this. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones because none of his bones are broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And as for my clothing, they cast lots. Sounds pretty close to what we're looking at here. Well, that was written several hundred years before Jesus arrived in the scene. It's stuff like this where we put it all together and we say, is this meant to be understood as history? Well, the answer is yes. Now, this is only one facet, young person. We're talking about one facet. We're, we're looking at the gospel and saying, did they mean for us to take it literally as history? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Yes. Does it matter if it's history? Can we just have faith and trust God to be God and we can just kind of ignore some of this stuff? The answer is no. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says, and if, if Christ has not been raised, that is, died, buried, and raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's useless. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are, in fact, not raised. He goes on, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. 
and you are still in your sins. And those who are also, those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This matters everything, young person. Whether Jesus Christ actually lived and died and rose again matters everything. Matters everything. If it's real, if Jesus actually lived and died in your place, then something awful and something awesome is simultaneously taking place. Take a look with me. With him, Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Snicker, snicker. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So this is the robbers, the guys who were convicted of their sin. They're saying, dude, what, are you, what an idiot you are. If you're really the Christ, come on, let's do something about this. And when the sixth hour had come, 12 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sebachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Ha! And someone ran and filled a sponge and put sour wine on it and put a reed and gave it to him to drink and saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Some of you, as you're reading this with me, said, Ah, yep, same old gospel story. But man, there really is a sense in which you and I should appreciate, deeply appreciate, and be moved by Christ's suffering on our behalf. If he really did live and die, this matters everything. Today's day and age, we worship a lot of things. In fact, I came across this article recently that says, a mutant goat was born with a human face and is being worshipped like, like, like a god. Where? India. This mutant goat was born with a genetic defection, and now when the people see it, they say, this certainly is a god among us. It's funny and incredibly tragic. We're telling people, you should worship Jesus Christ. And people said, no thanks, I'll worship a goat. It would be even funnier if it weren't so devastatingly consequential to their eternal life. Think about this. If they were to go on to worship this goat and celebrate it as one of their gods, what will happen to those people if Jesus is true? They perish in their sins. You see, the gospel really is, in just a few short words, Jesus in my place. Jesus on the cross where I should be sitting, standing, being nailed. I should be the one absorbing God's wrath. But instead, Jesus was the one who was shamed. People wagged their fingers at him and they told him how, how foolish and stupid he was. And, and he was the one shamed when in fact we should be ashamed. And yet today's day and age, shame is the last thing any one of us want to feel or even think about. We do everything we can to squash it because we think to feel ashamed is somehow ruinous to our self-confidence. In fact, I saw an article like that that said this, stop being ashamed of who you are to build self-esteem. And it goes on to tell us about uh, know your strengths and stop being a perfectionist. And this last one was the clincher. It said, follow your own road. Everyone has their own unique journey in life. And there is no, quote, 
right way. Stop comparing yourself to other people and stop worrying about the things that you should be doing, like those preachers tell you. Don't be ashamed of your journey because the, the only path you have is your own path. It's okay to live your own life and to be you. And I think the gospel disagrees with them. <laughs> you see, there is a place, a right place for shame, young person. When you realize that your sin against God is what condemns you and what should rightly crush you, you can realize then that when Jesus was shamed on the cross, he was doing it in your place. Jesus is being, is being mocked and ridiculed. Now remember this. I told you that humiliation was the name of the game, right? As he's on the cross naked, don't forget that part of his beard had been ripped out of his face. Don't forget that they put a crown of thorns and shoved it on top of his skull so that it started dripping blood into his eyes. Don't forget that he was spat upon. Has anyone ever spat upon you? That's one of the grossest feelings in the world, to have someone spit in your face. And Jesus suffered that repeatedly. He was shamed and he was mocked. They gave him, they gave him a, a, fake, a fake crown and a fake scepter to say, Jesus, the King of the Jews. Look at this moron who's on the cross. Jesus, the King of the Jews. How utterly foolish this man is. And they bowed to him and paid homage with mockery in their voice, dripping from their tongues. They hated him. They mocked him. And he, his mockery continues today. That's not something new. The mockery of God continues even to this very day from prominent atheists, militant people who would say that for, for those of us in this room who actually believe this, this is foolishness. Jesus was shamed, mocked, rejected by God. He was rejected by God. That's why there was darkness over the land. God allowed darkness to come in order to show his rejection upon Jesus, his pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. How great the pain of searing loss as the Father turns his face away. We sang that this morning. Jesus is being the curse for us. Jesus is receiving all of the anger and the wrath that God rightly deserves to pour out on all creation that has sinned against him, punished by God. Not only was there rejection, but there was physical pain, there was spiritual pain that he experienced as the judgment of God pours upon him. Again, he chose not to receive any wine, no anesthetic, so that at the end of it, he actually dies. Jesus in my place. Jesus took all of these things, not for his own sake. Remember, he was innocent. He had never done anything wrong. He does it for you and for I. And we get access to this by turning from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus. And again, if this is a real historical event, you are a fool to reject it. I could say the opposite. If it's not a historical event, you are a fool to accept it. This is why it matters so much, Christian. This is everything for us. Do you believe this? How should you respond? Well, take a, take a page out of the centurion's playbook. The very last verse of the text that we're looking at today says, how did he respond? It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Young person, point number three, you need to confess Jesus as the son of God and the Lord of all. If this is historically true, and we have every reason to believe it is, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but you have every reason to surrender your life and live for him and die for him if he calls for that, because this is everything. 
This is why Christians will go on missions, giving their lives in order to, to reach people with the gospel. Because they know that if this is true, it matters for everything. And some of us are playing Christianese, we're playing church, and we're just happy with showing up on Sunday. We're happy with having our consciences assuaged and felt like, oh, everything's okay. I confessed Jesus when I was six, or you know, I, I, I said the sinner's prayer, and I went to church that one time, and I, that revival had a lot of strong feelings. But are you living for it? No. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes. You are capable of so much more than you realize. And if you're willing to go all in for Christ, as you should, everything in your life should change. Everything. There's not one stone in your life that won't be affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what he's done. You have two options. You can do that, live for the glory of God. He lived and died for you. He absorbs your penalty at his own personal suffering. And then he says, you can have life, real life, by following my way. Or you can do it the world's way. You can have personal autonomy. You can have your own life that you want to live. You can listen to the music you want to listen to. You can have sex with whoever you want. You can have as much money as you want. You can be greedy. You can do whatever you want with your body. It's yours. But as Scripture says, when we do this, we do it to our own destruction, to the point where we begin to sear our consciences so that we can no longer feel what is right and wrong. And that was made abundantly clear to me this week as I came across this short 15-second clip that destroyed me. How do you feel, Ashley? <laughs> Don't be scared. I'm right here. you know what you just saw? Does that sink in? Girl, your age, one of your classmates gets pregnant and drives to the abortion clinic with her friend laughing and giggling and has an innocent human being ripped out of her uterus and destroyed, sacrificed at the altar of her personal convenience, her autonomy, and her so-called freedom. You see, this is the alternative. You can follow Christ and live for his glory and honor, or you can do your own thing, and things like this become commonplace, laughable, inconsequential. See, in a perverse way, this TikTok is really similar to the gospel. Someone innocent suffers for another. Except in the gospel, Jesus willingly lives and dies, suffering under God's wrath in your place, but in this... The innocent is forcefully and violently destroyed at the hands of the guilty with no choice of his or her own. If we're going to confess Jesus as the Son of God and Lord of all, that means, young person, that this should radically alter your life. There is no, I'm too busy. There is no, I, I'm tired, I'm scared, I'm worried. There is none of that. There's no option for you to say that. There's no option for me to say that. No one who calls himself a Christian can say, it's too hard, I don't want to do this. Because real lives are at stake. So really, I have only for you, as we close this, a moment of decision for you. That's it, just that, just a moment of decision. If you're a Christian, ask yourself, am I living the life that God wants me to? Have I truly counted the cost? Am I really following after? The, if it's true, If it is true, what are you going to do with this? If it's not, throw it out. 
Go away. Have, you know, fine. Do, do, do your own thing. Make Sunday morning. Go surfing on a Sunday morning. Heard that waves are good at this time of day. But if this is real, this matters for everything. Are you willing to accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? You can't have one without the other. If you're going to follow Christ, he must be the Lord of your life. He deserves that, doesn't he? He lived and died in your place. He suffered under the wrath of God for your sin. What will you do with this? Let's pray.